You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. Hey, if you have your uh, Bible or your smartphone or tablet or whatever you want to follow along, turn to Galatians, the third chapter. We're going to start with verse 15 this morning and following. David kicked off our Going Deeper series last week. We're looking at Galatians chapters 3 and 4 through this series and taking a little deeper dive because that's where Paul goes on this. He goes a little further down below the waterline. So we're going to do that. We pick up today in the narrative of the letter. Paul has just finished proving from the Old Testament that God's plan of salvation left no room for this works mentality that you can be good enough that, you know, a lot of people drafted from the law. Our faith is a logical faith, and it can be defended on rational grounds. Now, there are divine mysteries in our faith that no one can really fully explain. But there are also divine reasons that any sincere person should be able to understand. And Paul was trained as a Jewish rabbi. If you don't know that about him, he actually grew up in the Jewish faith. He was part of the Sanhedrin. He was destined to be a rabbi. And he knew the Old Testament law forwards and backwards, sideways, both directions. He was fully equipped to argue the case that he's going to make in our text this morning. He was fully prepared to defend the faith. This guy knew the law. He knew the law. I want to tell you a story first before we jump into the text. People had been dreaming about flying for centuries. Balloons and gliders got people up into the air, but they had very little control once they got up there. So there was this deep desire among man to get up into into the atmosphere and be able to fly, to control it. So inventors and daredevils all around the world started creating flying machines. I got a couple that I wanted to show you. These were not exactly successes, okay? Hey, this looks like a bird. Birds fly, okay. (laughs) Wasn't very successful. This guy, now it looks like it has potential, right? Never got off the ground. Just wasn't very successful. And this, I'm not even sure what happens in this. I think it actually spun around or I'm not sure. But that didn't succeed. A lot of people had this idea that they wanted to get up into the, into, the, into the air, but they couldn't get up there. And some actually were able to get off the ground for a short time, but they had no way of sustaining the flight or controlling things once they got up there. You're probably familiar with the names Wilbur and Orville Wright. They also had this passion to fly. The invention of their plane, though, was a six-year process that lasted from 1899 to 1905. And it began with this simple glider, which Wilbur Wright flew around like a kite. And it ended with the development of the first practical airplane known as the Wright Flyer III. Here's a picture of uh, their first flight. Pretty awesome. Wilbur and Orville noticed that all of, the, all of these primitive aircraft that people were designing, though they could get into the air, they couldn't 
they couldn't direct it in the air. There was no sense of control once you got up there. And you can imagine how terrifying that might be. Well, they noticed that most of these aircraft lacked what they would probably refer to as suitable controls, a way of directing the plane. It was different from the conventional ideas. They wanted to come up with something that was unique, and that's what happened. In 1899, Wilbur Wright devised a simple system that was very counter to all of the conventional wisdom. Some were spending huge amounts of money and time on systems that had been unsuccessful, but they continued to resurrect the same systems. The Wright brothers devised a different system. It was very simple. It just twisted the wings of the biplane in such a way that when you twisted it a certain way, the plane would bank to the right. If you twisted it the other way, it would bank to the left. They finally found themselves having control in the air. They tested the system first with kites and then with gliders. And then they made their first test flights in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, on the shores of the Atlantic Ocean. On December the 17th, 1903, Wilbur and Orville Wright made the first sustained, controlled flights in a powered aircraft. They had refused to be bound by the unsuccessful methods and ways that all the other aviators were using. In our text today, Paul makes a similar point. Paul made this point that the law could not save man. But God had a plan that the grace of God could. You see, if you focused on the law for salvation, you would fail because nobody could keep it and you had to keep it perfectly. Yet the Judaizers were insisting that the Christians who lived in the Galatian region, the region of Galatia, that they obey certain aspects of the law in order to be saved. And Paul takes them on in this text. This section, Paul makes four, I think, pretty significant statements that help us to understand the relationship between the promise that God gave Abraham and the law. And so I want us to take a look at these four statements. The first one is this. The law cannot change God's promise. The law cannot change God's promise. Listen to what Paul writes in verses 15 through 18 of Galatians chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life, just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established. So it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduces 430 the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. One thing that's pretty interesting about this is that from an exegesis standpoint, the study of the text, one of the 
hermeneutical tools that you use is you look for words that are used multiple times. And you may have noticed that the word promise is used eight different times in this text. It's referring to the promise that God made to Abraham. And used that many times, it's indicative of the fact that that's a pretty important aspect of what Paul is talking about here. Paul's talking about God's promise to Abraham that in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Here's the promise that he gave back in Genesis, the 12th chapter, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. One thing that's obvious is that this promise that God gave to Abraham came long before the law ever showed up. The Judaizers, though, they implied that, giving, that the giving of the law changed the original promise, the original covenant, the agreement between God and Abraham. Paul, Paul argues that it didn't. In fact, he uses kind of modern-day realities with regard to agreements. He points out that once two parties reach an agreement, A third party can't come along years later and just randomly change the agreement. They don't have any authority to do that. The only persons who can actually change an original agreement are the people who made it. To add anything to that agreement or take anything away from it would have been illegal in that day. If this was true among sinful men, Paul's point, how much more does it apply to a holy God? By the way, Abraham didn't make a covenant with God. God made a covenant with Abraham. It was a covenant of grace. He was going to bless Abraham, and he was going to bless people through Abraham. God made it with Abraham. God made promises to Abraham. Abraham didn't make promises to God. There's another thing that Paul reveals in this text, a pretty important truth. And that is that God made his promise not only to Abraham, but did you notice he also made it to Christ? Verse 16 says, And to your seed, who is Christ? Now the biblical concept of seed refers to offspring. And if you go all the way back to Genesis, the third chapter, you find where we're talking about the offspring and the conflict that existed after the fall of man. There is a conflict among offspring. And I'll explain it here in just a minute. After the fall of man, we read in verse 15 of Genesis 3, God is kind of meting out the, the results of the fall of man. And this is what he says. And I will put enmity... Between you, he's talking to the serpent who you know as Satan in that story, and the woman, this is Eve, and between your offspring and hers. He's going to put enmity between the two. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. After the fall of man, God stated that there would be conflict in the world between Satan's offspring, the children of the world, and the woman's seed, God's children, and ultimately the Son of God. Satan's goal in the Old Testament was to keep the seed, that was the Messiah or Jesus, from being born into the world. Satan knew that God's Son would ultimately one day crush his head. 
in the final analysis, God made this covenant promise with Abraham through Christ. Moses couldn't alter this covenant. He wasn't part of the original agreement. The Judaizers wanted to add to God's grace and take away from God's promises, but a law given centuries later cannot change a covenant made by the original parties. The law cannot change God's promise. Well, let's go on in the text. Verses 19 and 20. Paul writes, Why then was the law given at all? You should underline that if if you're underlining or highlighting. It was added because of transgressions. That's a big word that stands for sins. Until the seed, he's talking about the Messiah here, to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party. But God is one. The second statement that Paul gives us here that helps us to understand the relationship between this promise that God gave Abraham, that was an important promise, and the law is this statement. The law is not more important than the promise. The promise still is more important. The law is important, but it's not more important. In fact, the giving of the law was pretty impressive. If you went on that alone, you'd think, well, this trumps the promise. You can read about this in Exodus, the 19th chapter. There was thunder. There was lightning. The, uh, the, the people of Israel were trembling with fear in the moment. In fact, Moses was even shaken in his sandals. But Paul points out that the law is actually inferior to the covenant promise. In two ways, he points it out. In the first, in verse 19, the law was temporary. The law was temporary. Paul said it was added until the seed. That's a a reference to the Messiah, Jesus. Until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. It was added. It was in place until the Messiah comes. And when you read God's covenant with Abraham, one of the things that you'll notice is that it's unconditional. There's nothing, there are no conditions you have to meet in order to receive this promise. It's all about grace. But the blessing of the law was dependent on meeting certain conditions, certain standards. The law had an ending point to it as a result until the seed, the Messiah, had come. And with the death and resurrection of Jesus, the law was done away with. And now its righteous demands are fulfilled in us through the Holy Spirit. That's what the writer of Romans tells us. Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. I love this passage. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There's a second facet about this law that Paul points out as to why it's inferior to the promise. And it's the law required a mediator. God gave the law to Israel, but he did it with angels through the mediation of Moses. So this means the nation received the law third hand. 
God gave it to angels, angels gave it to Moses, and Moses gave it to the people. But when God made his covenant with Abraham, it was just God and Abraham. He did it personally, without any kind of mediation. There was nobody in between God and Abraham. A mediator stands between two parties to help them reach some kind of agreement, to work out the details. But there was no need for a mediator to work out anything between God and Abraham. In Abraham's case, God just entered into his presence and they entered into this covenant agreement. There was no need for a go-between. Well, there's a third statement that Paul makes that helps us to understand the relationship between this promise that God gave Abraham and the law. And that is the law is not opposed to the promise. It may not be greater than the promise, but it's not opposed to the promise. They're not at loggerheads. Look what he says in verses 21 and following. Paul writes, Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Another place you might want to highlight. It's a good question. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that would impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, he's talking about the Messiah there, we have held in custody... We were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian, keyword, until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Did you hear that? So in Christ Jesus, if you're in him, you are all children of God through faith. Now if you go back to the beginning of where I started reading in verse 21, you can almost hear the Judaizers shouting this question at Paul. If there was a debate, they probably yelled, is the law opposed to the promises of God? Is the law opposed to the promises of God? Is God contradicting himself, Paul? Is that what's happening here? But replying to their question, Paul reveals some deep insight into the ways and purposes of God. The law doesn't contradict the promise, but rather it cooperates with the promise by fulfilling the purposes that God had. While the law and grace seem to be at loggerheads with one another, if you go a little deeper, you'll discover that they actually complement one another. So then the question is, why was the law given in the first place? And Paul answers that. The law was not given, he said, to provide life. That was the first insight that Paul gives us in the text. We read that in verse 21. The law was not given to provide life. The law of Moses actually regulated the lives of Jewish people. But it did not and could not provide spiritual life to them. Look at verse 21. The last part of it says, For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. We wouldn't even need grace. We would have had the law. And if life and righteousness could have come through the law, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die on the cross. And we know that he did die on the cross because the law could never give the sinner life. 
could never give the sinner righteousness. It could never actually wash a sinner's sins away. There's a second insight that Paul gives, and that is the law was given to reveal sin. We see the way that law and grace cooperate in bringing the lost sinner to Jesus. They cooperate in this way. The law shows the sinner his guilt, his sin. And grace shows him the forgiveness that he can have in Jesus Christ. The law doesn't make us sinners. It actually reveals to us that we already are sinners. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sins. The law helps us to see there's sin in our lives. It's grace that provides the cleansing power for our sin through the blood of Jesus. The correct use of the law is to reveal sin, causing people to see their need for a Savior. The correct, incorrect use of the law, excuse me, is to try to achieve salvation by keeping the law. The law concludes, we are all prisoners of sin. Paul points that out in Galatians 3.22. But since we are all prisoners to sin, then all of us should be eligible to be saved by grace. God does not have two ways of salvation. There's only one. And it's through faith in Jesus. Paul gives us another insight into why the law was given. That was the law prepared the way for Christ. The law prepared the way for Christ. Paul uses an illustration in this part of the text that would have been really familiar to his readers, probably even more so than it is to us. And it had to do with a child's guardian. In many Greek and Roman households, they had educated slaves who took the children to school, watched over them during their daily activities. Often, they would teach the children their lessons, and they would protect them, and sometimes they would even discipline them. By using this illustration, Paul is saying several things about the Jews and their law. The first is this. He says that the Jews were not born through the law, but rather they were brought up by the law, like a guardian. The law wasn't the source of their life, but they grew up under the law. The slave was not the child's father. He was the child's guardian. So the law didn't give life to Israel. It regulated the life of the Jew. The second thing Paul says is even more important. The work of the guardian prepared the child for maturity. Once a child came of age, he no longer needed the guardian. So the law was that preparation for the nation of Israel to prepare the nation for the coming of the promised seed, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The goal of God's plan was Jesus' coming. But before the coming of this faith, this Messiah, the nation was held in custody by the law. That's what Paul says. You know what that literally translates to? The nation was imprisoned by the law. There was no freedom there. During the centuries of Jewish history... The law was preparing for the coming of Jesus. The law reminded the people 
You need a Savior. And He's coming. You need a Savior. He's coming. Probably one of the best illustrations of this reality as far as a Jewish person in the midst of this, kind of being uh, imprisoned by the law and understanding, or at least trying to see that they have a need for a Savior, happens in Matthew, the 19th chapter. It's the story we call the rich young ruler. Some of you are probably familiar with this guy. This young man reminds me of a lot of people who live in our culture today, the American way of life. This guy had everything anybody could ever desire, but he wasn't satisfied. He had tried to keep the commandments all of his life, but still something was missing on the inside. These commandments, they actually, though he messed up a few times along the way, they actually were the reason that brought him to have this conversation with Jesus. This is one of the purposes of the law, is to create that inner sense of understanding of your guilt for your sin and to help you realize that you need a Savior The sad thing is that this young man came, had a conversation with Jesus, but he wasn't honest as he looked into the mirror of the law. He didn't see his sin, and he didn't see his need for a Savior. And so he walked away that day from Jesus without eternal life. The text says that he went away very sad because he had a lot of things, a lot of wealth. The law performed its purpose, though. In that case, and in literally millions of other circumstances, the Savior has come, and the guardian is no longer needed. Any man, a Jew or a Gentile, can trust Jesus Christ to become a child of God. And that means you. Well, there's one last statement, the fourth one that Paul makes that helps us to understand this this relationship between the promise that God gave Abraham and the law. And that's the law cannot do what the promise can do. The law cannot do what the promise can do. Look what he says in verses 27 to the end of the chapter. He says, For all of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. While there was a certain amount of glory that was attached to the law, there was a greater glory of the gracious salvation of God that was found in Jesus Christ. The law could not do for the sinner what Jesus could do for them. The The law was unable to fully expunge a person's sins. But Jesus could. To begin with, the law couldn't justify the sinner. You may remember uh, a few uh, weeks back we talked about justification. Justification actually means just as if my debt was paid or just as if I had fully paid my debt. And the law can't justify a sinner. James writes in James 2.10, he says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. And yet Paul says in Romans 4 that God justifies the ungodly. 
The law can't do it, but God can. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ that a sinner is justified, declared righteous before an almighty God. The law could never give a person a relationship with God. There's another part of what the law couldn't do. It separated man from God. It didn't actually bring man towards God. It actually drove a wedge in between. There was a fence around the tabernacle, and there was a veil around in, in the, between the holy place and the holy of holies in the actual temple. And these barriers were there to separate people because of their sin. It separated them from God. In Galatians 3, verse 27, Paul writes, For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Where the law was separating us from God, Paul's saying that we can actually be clothed with Christ. In Christian baptism, the believers clothed themselves with Jesus. The idea was of putting on Christ is a picture of changing one's clothing. The believer has laid aside the dirty garments of his sinful past, and by faith he receives these robes of righteousness that he has in Christ, which happens when he's baptized. We will then not stand before God in filthy rags of our own attempts of goodness, but instead in the white robes of the righteousness of Christ. And here's the interesting thing about that. Only you can make that decision for you. No one else can make that for you. If that were the case, I would have long ago made that decision for all of you because I would want every one of you to experience what it means to be in Christ and have that, that confidence of eternal salvation, knowing that someday when this life is over, you will be with Jesus in paradise for all eternity. But that's only a decision that you can make. Parents can't make it for you. Your spouse can't make it for you. Your kids can't urge you into that relationship by making it for you. Only you can take that step. Verse 28, Paul says, For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus. And that's a huge privilege. You are all one in Christ Jesus. The law created these these differences and distinctions, but Jesus came not to divide, but to unite. This must have been a glorious, glorious word from God for the Galatian Christians, because in their society, slaves were considered to be property, and women were confined and disrespected, and Gentiles, they were constantly sneered at by the Jews. In fact, A Pharisee who was a Jewish leader in the synagogue would pray each morning, I thank thee, God, that I am a Jew and not a Gentile, a man, not a woman, a free man, not a slave. Man, what an arrogant prayer. But once Jesus came, all of that was gone. Yet all these distinctions had existed. They were removed through Jesus Christ. Somebody said that the land or... The foot of the cross is level. There are no priority seating. There's no elevations because of your status. It's level. Everyone is on the same plane because we're the same. Well, there's one more thing that Paul says about the law. The law couldn't make us heirs 
of God. He couldn't make us heirs of God. Galatians 3.29 says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. God made this promise to Abraham's seed, which was Christ, the Messiah, Jesus. And if we are in Christ, if we are baptized into Christ, if we are clothed in Christ, as Paul said, by faith, then we too are Abraham's his seed, spiritually speaking. This means we're heirs of the spiritual blessings that God promised Abraham. You know, when I think about this text, I started studying it a while back, and I, I started realizing there's a lot here, and it's not the most exciting of text. To, you know, you always look for that lightning bolt. You look for that moment where you go, oh, yeah, that'll really set people on fire. And most of this is just this contrast between the law and the promise of God and how they actually work together. But if you take a moment and you reflect on this, and I, I want to encourage you to read chapter 3 of Galatians a couple times this week. This section in Paul's letter shows something that's really important. The spiritual lessons of the Old Testament are not just for Jews. The application is for Christians today as well. And when you learn about God's promise and you see how it connects with the law, your Christian life will take on new wonder and purpose and meaning as you realize all that you have in your relationship with Jesus Christ. I hope you walk out of here as a believer being refreshed, knowing that you're a child of the God of the universe. You are a son or a daughter in the family of God. You're an heir. You're you're going to get inheritance as an heir for all eternity. You know, I, I see people on occasion who think they're going to do just good enough to get into heaven. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm working really hard. I'm doing better now than I used to. <laughs> you have a relationship with Jesus? Well, you know, I think God's going to give me a, he'll give me a high sign, you know. I did well enough. I wasn't perfect, did, but I did good enough. The truth is God doesn't grade on a curve. The law showed us that we, we were not capable of living a perfect life and we needed a savior. So if you, if you've never made that step of faith, I'm here to tell you, you desperately need a relationship with Jesus if you want to have hope for all eternity. He's the only one that can wash away your sins because he paid the price on the cross and his blood will be the atonement that covers your sins. And God won't remember those sins anymore. Don't take it for granted that you have tomorrow to do that. If you've never taken that step, I want to encourage you to do that today. I want to pray. Before I do that, I want you to know I'm going to be down here after the service. Or maybe you don't want to come and talk to me down there. I'd love to talk to you. Maybe you'd rather just meet together over coffee or come to my office and we have a conversation. I'd be happy to do that. Notes to Monty at nccleX.org. That's the easiest way to get me. You send me a note. We'll, we'll arrange a time to get together. We'd love to talk to you about what it means 
to have a relationship with Jesus. It changed my life and it will change yours for all eternity. Let's pray to God. God, I'm so grateful to learn a long, long time ago that I needed a Savior. Thanks for reminding us and refreshing us today, God, just how important it was to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. God, we know that sin separated man from you since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And yet you had a plan to fix that. Abraham's seed would come as a savior and he would save every person who would put their faith in him, no matter who they were, no matter where they were from, no matter what they had done in their life. You'll wash away our sins, Lord. Give us a new start and give us the promise of everlasting life. God, we're so thankful for that. We're so grateful for that. Lord, I pray for that person who's here today that's never taken that step of faith to put Jesus at the center of their life and say yes to him. Please, Jesus, wash my sins away. Make me a new creation. God, I pray that they would take that step today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.